of me, and I stepped aside just before the hot glass hit the floor right where I was standing. Uh-huh. My Michael Jackson moment. <laughs> I guess Yee-hee! We, I guess we can go ahead and... Yep, yep, you're good, to, you're good to drop the mask if you want to. That's it. I think we're far enough apart. I think we're okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I figure about twenty twenty five feet. We're probably okay. Is, is reasonable. I do. Uh, I do the best that I can with that. Yeah, this is a, this is a nice little setup. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like I said, coming from somebody who gets it, uh, <laughs> it means a lot. Well, it's an honor to be on the same stage as Jenny Johnson and Stick and Mark Stoffel and you know all these folks over the years. It is a it is a nicely shared stage. Hey, a lot that of, thing lot of good last memory. night was great. Thank you. I appreciate oh, that. Oh wow, we we were watching that and listening. It was so enjoyable. Stick Stick was a hoot to oh my to gosh. host that with. <laughs> he just he you know he's he's a mix of 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 the se- the self consciousness sets off the talent mm-hmm. right there's just something about that with with folks who you know are are good and then you know concerned <laughs> if that makes sense well monica started streaming it and i'm like what is that that's beautiful and she explained i'm like oh yeah i'd seen that this was coming up i'm like oh wow this is great and I got to tell you, it was a, it, it's a wonderful way to stay connected in this really weird time right. that we're living in. Well, and it's, it's funny, too, adding in kind of like the live conversation components to mm-hmm. it um, has, has uh, <laughs> that, that has, uh, like, really livened up the, the show. Like, mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's evolved bit by bit. Um, you know, over over the course of doing this, from when Mister Number First <laughs> Tim Crosby did our first one, and it was just, uh, you know, I, I've literally never done sound lights or anything like that before. I, I, this is this is all very new to me. I was always a a person comfortable on stage, but never uh, behind the board. So having evolved it to the point now where it can feel like a live show because you are in a performance with all of your friends, seeing what they mm-hmm. have to say, mm-hmm. hearing the words read back to you. It's that interactive media that helps to bridge that gap between the digital and the physical spaces. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting to me to um, be in a live production, like when we're at the, the Capitol doing the governor's state of the state and budget messages and things like that, because mm-hmm. you have a little microphone on you here you have an ifb and you've got your floor director and all that and you've got four people on cameras six people in the truck and you know another 20 people around the state pulling down what you're doing and Mm -hmm. there's all the graphics and all the stuff that goes into it and it's just this really interesting organic hole that you're in uh (laughs) And then it's and it's also the personal relationship you have with um, your fellow reporters mm-hmm. and the politicians. In my case, uh, at least in that one show I do, <laughs> uh, it, it's really interesting because you get to know them over time. You you know where their hot buttons are. You know where their soft spots are, and uh, all that. And um, it's fun being able to pull it together and it's nice at least i hope <laughs> for the technical <laughs> people that i've been on the other side of it pulling it together as a producer uh-huh. so i don't paint them into i try to i try very carefully to be watching the time and all the rundowns and stuff so that i don't paint them into a corner and you know blow up the tv schedules for 10 pbs stations <laughs> across the state but it, it, it's you know it's a thrill, and it's 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 uh, really a special thing to be able to do it. So anyway, well, and it's a thrill and a special thing to be doing episode number twenty-four uh, with a legendary guest uh, in the world of broadcasting in the state of Illinois, uh, and probably to so many people 
around the country, around the globe, who have gotten to interact with him uh, over the many years that he's been engaged with this. Um, we'll get to that point here shortly, uh, but welcoming my guest to WTF Carbondale episode 24, Mr. Jack Titchener, where we're talking to interesting people about their interesting lives, tying it all together with this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois, and, and really, Jack, with, with all of the stories. Like, because it's not, you don't just live stories, right? A lot of us and a lot of folks live stories, right? But you are cataloging things and creating an entire segment of history that is referenceable. <laughs> well, thank you. Th thanks, Nathan, for, for having me. First of all, I really appreciate it and, yeah. and the work that you're doing. And um, thanks. I I feel like I've been really lucky in a lot of, uh, a lot of my career to sort of be there when the first draft of history is being written as Jim Lair, the legendary newscaster from the McNeil Lair uh, news report uh, uh, said over the years. Um, I've been lucky to, in many ways, be able to have a, a career here in my own backyard. Mm -hmm. I'm from Metropolis, about 60 miles, uh, depending on how you drive, uh, <laughs> down to the Ohio River, just across from Paducah, Kentucky, and to have uh, most of my professional career here at uh, SIU and to, to have been a part of a really special place in uh, the life of media in the United States and, and, and the world in, in many respects. This is kind of uh, one of the magic touchstones of our business here at SIU mm -hmm. uh, because of the reputation of the school and the thousands of people have come through it over the years as students, as faculty and staff. It's a, it's a lovely place, and I, I'm just so deeply grateful to uh, so many people for the experience I've had here. Oh, that's beautiful. It, it really is, because it's just, it's, again, le legacy is important in any higher education setting, but it's like there's a difference between the legacy of pop and pomp and circumstance, right? Yeah. And the legacy of network or the legacy of action. And it's like in a, in a scrappy little state school, like SIU, it's like our legacy is action, not just that. Oh, I think that, that's a good point because I was talking to someone the other day and we were kind of going over the whole history of WSIU and all that. And I mm -hmm. said, well, you know, it really starts back in 1948 when Delight Morris came here. Delight Morris came here as a, a, a young academic professional, administrative professional, and he was starting to build, uh, lay the building blocks for this communications enterprise that exists to this very day. Mm -hmm. And he was starting to sign up uh, for federal communications licenses for radio and television mm -hmm. in the early 1950s. The first radio station, WSIU Radio, didn't go on until 1958, mm -hmm. but they were already applying for the licenses for TV, all these things. They were bringing in faculty members like Buren Robbins from outside to start really building the foundation for this thing. And, you know, I, I've been able to, over the years, talk to people who were there at the very beginning. And it's mm -hmm. so cool because um, even as early as, I think, 1954, 1955, which is the year of my birth, uh, <laughs> students in the radio TV to pro program were starting to do uh, radio productions that were on, they were mailed out, they were on these reel-to-reel -reel tapes, this very flimsy medium back in the day. They were sending them out to commercial radio stations even before we had our own license here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the roots go back to the late 1940s, and here we are in 2020, and so much has happened over the years. This is just such a special place. Uh, you you, you you see the growth of SIU over the years, and you see all the things that this university and its radio and TV stations and media channels have meant to uh, the region, the state, and the, the country and the world. It's really a special place to be. Well, and the, the, the decline as well, while some folks may not find a silver lining that, to, to me, especially when we're in a massive media transition, as a world right where the mm -hmm. internet and applications and smartphones as media devices have completely changed the way in which we communicate to really have a 
ground up rebuild of a communications facility, a communication related identity. Yeah. Like, and, and I've been, I've been pitching this to everybody from, from, you know, executive type folks to, mm-hmm. to students being like, you know, the intersection of everything that you do is media. Yeah. What's really interesting about it is, you know, we were talking right before we started this mm-hmm. about, um, when I started in the business was right around 1970, 71, mm-hmm. and everything was analog at the time. So, you know, I, I started out as a, a, a DJ in my hometown of Metropolis, a little AM station, mm-hmm. WMOK, 1,000-watt daytime station. And everything in that station in 1970, 71 dated back to the 1940s equipment-wise. So mm-hmm. you had turntables, you were playing records uh you had reel-to-reel tapes and all that kind of stuff and lots and lots of live copy and there was kind of this infrastructure thing there so let's go forward you know you have tv studios you have uh, master controls you have all these different um huge infrastructures Mm -hmm. that uh, allowed you to talk to mass audiences now you can just reach in your pocket you know turn on the phone, <laughs> right. and you can do so much. You can do even more than we could do uh, back in the day. And it's really fascinating to me to see how we've um, grown with that over the years. Yeah. Um, the business has definitely changed. Not so many mom and pop radio and TV stations anymore because of the way the industry was deregulated starting back in the 1980s under mm-hmm. the Reagan administration and then forward through the Clinton years and all that. Um, But then you have this, uh, the way that the internet, the web, uh, personal devices like we all have now, uh, and social media, we can reach out to so many different uh, audiences. Uh, It's kind of like we're swimming in the sea of media and we're always trying to, uh, you know, keep track of where we are in it. It's definitely, been a sea change over my career that's uh, going on 50 years now. Uh, But it's just fascinating to see the students who come in at uh, SIU and who bring all this enthusiasm and intelligence and imagination and creativity uh, to what they're doing and um, to see how these programs evolve over the years. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating to be a little bit of a part of it what um so the change in media policy starting in the 80s was it was it the fairness doctrine that was like the first thing that that went and okay so yeah go ahead sorry no 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 the the fairness doctrine basically was a part of fcc uh regulations that said you have to give equal time to all parts of uh, discussion on a controversial issue, mm-hmm. and, and, and that w- that went away. Uh, then there was the relaxation or the end of the um, uh, policies where you couldn't have more than one uh, broadcast media outlet in a town, and there were some that were grandfathered into that. And it, it's interesting, when I look at the market I was in for about seven years in the Paducah, Kentucky area, mm-hmm. when I was going uh, working my way through college, um, there were, let's see, one, two, th- there were three commercial radio stations in Paducah, then you had the you had WPSD, and you had the Paducah Sun, then you have, of course, WSIL and uh, KFBS. Um, but all of those things competed to do news. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of migrated into news and uh, I think it was 1978 19 no 1979 mm-hmm. kind of migrated over to the uh, to the news and information side of the spectrum uh, but we were all competitors at the time and there was fierce competition uh, competition between the commercial radio stations especially and now a lot of those places are all under one roof you look at all the markets mm-hmm. around the country and a lot of the stations that would have all been you know uh, tooth and nail against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, that distinction's not there anymore. You might have five radio stations in one building. Some of them are on little automation clocks. There's some live assist. There's some mm-hmm. live folks that are doing stuff. Um, it, it has definitely changed over the years. But at the same time, 
you have this uh, swing to personal media now and social media, uh, which allows so many outlets for people to to get their point of view out there and their share their passions it's it's been very it's very interesting to see it yeah it's uh share their passions is a way of phrasing it yeah um, yeah <laughs> what, so <laughs> what do you think that we would be in a completely different media landscape even getting into the the personalization of social media if it wasn't for the change in media policy over the years in the 80s and 90s that brought us here like yeah, the, the the regulatory thing is is a big part of it, but the, the business models change too. Mm-hmm. Uh, just think about the technology. When I started in radio in 1970, I think was uh, I think it was December when mm-hmm. I first walked into uh, our hometown radio station. As I say, everything was concentrated, you know, right there, and so. For every minute that radio station was on the air, somebody had to be there to attend to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was um, a human relations or human resources component to it that's very different than today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of today's radio stations are set up on computer programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you sit down, you create the log, all of your sources come in through uh, an IP address, mm-hmm. and you set the log up week, weeks in advance in some cases uh, for, for some stations. And so you don't have to pay for a person to be sitting there 24-7. If you had a, a live AM-FM combo, like we used to call it, mm-hmm. um, somebody had to be there in both control rooms 24-7 if you were that kind of station. Well, the business models today uh, with content like music, uh, information programming, that really has completely changed um, the whole situation. Uh, so the business model has changed over the years as well as the regulatory landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I did a while back was a First Amendment class for some students at uh, John A. Logan College, and I kind of went back and walked myself through it to try to make sense to, you know, 19s and 20-year-olds in, in, in the room. And it's like, <laughs> well, there was, you know, at the local station, there was somebody who did news. They went to the city council meeting. They went to the county board meeting. They went to the courthouse. They went to the police station, or they called the police. We had our police rounds every morning and every afternoon <laughs> to find out, you know, how things were going with accidents and public safety concerns and stuff I, I, like I gotta that. I got to say, it's so funny that, that you that you bring up that particular point because I saw a, a post by TV3 earlier today on Facebook that was a news post about a traffic uh, maybe it was like a a car chase or something that occurred in heron Mm -hmm. and they all they did was pull it straight from heron crime unit something or other the police department's facebook page and just essentially took that information and reshared it like there was no street beat relationship like there was no intermediary yeah yeah um that's true that's 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 been a big change because when I was working early morning news, mm-hmm. what you would do is long before you signed on, about an hour to, you know, your first newscast might be at uh, 6.06 right after CBS News. Mm-hmm. So you're in the building at 5 o'clock, ripping the wires and looking at stuff. And then, you know, probably in my case, working on notes and, you know, pulling sound bites from the meeting I'd covered the night before, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was Paducah City Council or, or whatever. Um, there was a lot more interaction with the news sources mm-hmm. than there is today. And um, I think we've lost something with that. Yep. It's very efficient though. Like you said, I, I, I know the story you're talking about with the police chase and this is what you know they, they put out there. And uh, it's, it's very similar to, looks exactly the same way we used to get it back mm-hmm. 40, almost 50 years ago. <laughs> But um, the actual experience of going to the courthouse covering a murder trial or going to federal court to cover a civil case or a criminal case, um, 
covering the local school board, the local park district, the city council meeting, all of those things. Um, that, uh, you know, there's the, there's the broadcast side of that. There's also the newspaper side of that, mm -hmm. that we've seen so much pullback over the years because of the changing media landscape. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that's been, that's a real downside because you need that kind of personal attention to all of these things as, as much as you can, I think, to, to live in a democracy and to have the information that you need to make a decision as you know, an informed voter, an informed citizen. Um, one of my professors said early in the day, you're not out there to be a star or anything. You're there to try to pull together as much information about the day's news as you can from your uh, vantage point as an objective reporter so that and distill it so that the person watching at home who has had a full day of family activities and work and all that stuff so that they can get an idea of what happened and so they can make informed decisions and that to me has been one of the downsides as you know, the, the media landscape has changed over the years because uh, we don't, we just don't see as much of that. So there's not as much, um, filtering's not the word I, I'm, I'm looking for, but there's but not as much, um, there's not as much uh, attention to the day-to-day -day activities of government and, and policy and politics. Um, with professional observers. Well, that, and, and uncovering is a, to me, a, another component of it, right? That yeah. in, in having a, a large and capable base of reporters that right now it's self-reporting, right? What gets picked up is almost like the wire from the source, mm -hmm. which is not always the most credible source, yeah. right? There, there may be something there. Now, most of the time, probably not. Like with the Heron release, right? There's probably not a bunch more it's to that story beyond what they put out prob there. Probably not a whole lot there. But, but but if there was something related to something internally that was going on, and they provided their own messaging, but there wasn't you know, well, actual investigation into that. Let me kind of jump ahead to yeah, uh, you know one of the areas that's very dear to me, and that's political coverage. Mm -hmm. When when I first started covering the Illinois State House in the late 1980s, I was still uh, a radio person at the time, but I was going up there because so much of what happens in Springfield uh, translates into important everyday decisions for um, the folks around this area. I mean, we're so um, heavily connected to what happens in the capital, whether it's budgetary or policy-wise. We have so many state facilities here, so many state workers here. I realized early on that that was important to have a, a good sense of that. But when I first came to the Capitol, uh, the newsroom was on the, wasn't the second floor, wasn't the third floor, it was like the mezzanine level. It was a little, kind of squished in between there on the, uh -huh. in the west wing of the place. Well, there were like 45 full-time reporters there, okay, mm -hmm. in the Legislative Correspondents Association. And the place was on a session day when the General Assembly was there. The place was packed with people. There were TV reporting crews from Chicago, Springfield, uh, Champaign, Rockford. I mean, Quincy, Carbondale. You know, every you know everybody was there. It was just this big beehive, beehive of activity. Fast forward now uh, to the fact that a lot of the large commercial stations and the newspapers have pulled way back from that. Mm -hmm. There's not nearly the number of local, there's not the number of bureaus in the capital, for example, mm -hmm. to go around and ask for uh, other opinions, get other ideas, get other interpretations about the day's news. And that's really, to me, that's troubling. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I would like, to sit down and read, you know, six or seven different news sources for the day about what's going on at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. uh, even on days when I'm not there, I mean, my reading list is 
uh, I'm still a voracious consumer of news. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as, as I look back over it over the last 10 years or so, it's so narrowed to what it used to be. Mm-hmm. There's still great work being done uh, by folks at the Capitol, no question about that. But there's not as many of them, and they don't have as many local interpretations of how this translates down to, you know, what happens on the House floor and the Senate floor or the, you know, the governor's office on the second floor. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, there's not the diversity of reporting that there once was, mm-hmm. and that's where, um, that's where I think there's a problem. You know, I think public media is doing a good job on that with the Illinois Public Radio News Desk. Um, you know, we have uh, at WSIU, we do a, a weekly Capital View show on the TV side with uh, folks who are there covering the stuff every day. Uh, certainly, it's been a challenge during COVID, no question about that. Oh, yeah. We do a lot of it by remote, but um, I still think we need more people on the ground, uh, whether it's City Hall, the you know, county courthouse, uh, or the Illinois General Assembly. I, I still think you need more and more information. You know, th- there's an old saying that uh, sunshine is the best uh, disinfectant. Uh, <laughs> I think that goes back to Paul Simon, uh, at least in one form or another, because he was the author of the first uh, public meetings uh, act in the state. So uh, I I think the more of that, the better. The reality is uh, that, you know, the commercial pressures especially have been such on the marketplace that uh, it's really hard for uh, local stations and local newspapers and that's not just locally, that's all over the state, that's all over the United States, mm-hmm. to actually have that up-close personal uh, contact with the lawmakers and the policymakers. What, what do you think about uh, some of the trend towards media outlets going to a nonprofit model versus a commercial for-profit model? I mean, do you, do you see any... I mean, especially coming from WSIU, which is is a little mm-hmm. different because it's mm-hmm. it's still public broadcasting funded, mm-hmm. and and you've got the school backing. You still have to have the donor base. There are lots of components that come into play there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I've talked to to some of my uh, you know modern media folks in in all sorts of industries. Like, hey, you know, it, if you feel like it's not working out in this way, is there a way to go into a nonprofit model where you see people who simply value the information that you provide? provide you some sort of direct sustenance as an audience? Um, I think you might be talking about the Capital News Bureau that's feeding a lot of the newspapers now for um, oh, okay. uh, the from through grants through the Illinois Press Association. Okay. So there are ways that that's being addressed, and I think that's, a, that's an especially good model mm-hmm. where you have the resources of all the newspaper um, uh, entities around the state that are chipping in to fund that they're, they're doing really good work there uh, public broadcasting has filled a lot of those uh, niches if you will over the years mm-hmm. as commercial radio and tv stations have kind of pulled back from that because of the way they do business uh, and that's uh, that's not a criticism it's just an observation of how the business has evolved mm-hmm. um, public media have stepped forward uh, across the united states to kind of bridge that gap, and I think that's, I think that's a real area for um, us to grow mm-hmm. um, in public media. That's a real area where we can make a difference. And on our end, uh, the stations, uh, the public radio and TV stations, are looking at a lot of collaborative models. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you hear the newscast, let's say in the morning on our station. It's coming from DeKalb, Mm -hmm. but it's coming from all the stations in the state. People are editing, they're working, they're reporting, in addition to the Public Radio News Bureau at the Capitol. There's this kind of synergistic thing that's going on out there. And I think that, um, I think people, I think we're doing a good job on that. We need to move more into that on the TV side. A lot of resources when you do that. but we're look we're looking at uh, we're looking at the opportunities and the challenges there. That's cool. 
I, I dig that. I mean, I, I hadn't even thought about the the collaborative model aspect as well. Like mm-hmm. what you know, what can be achieved when everybody's just kind of putting their resources into a pool and and trying to draw from it on the mm-hmm. other end. Well, we, we we've been doing that for a long time, um, particularly on the public radio side. Um, there's been uh, there's been a bureau there. I'm trying to think. This actually probably predates me, uh, <laughs> but uh, I know that there's a strong uh, on the ground reporting uh, program there at the Capitol. But as things have moved along over the years, you know, it's it's not just the Capitol. We need to know what's going on in Chicago. We need to know what's going on in. Uh, uh, in Springfield, we need to know what's going on in the Carbondale area, uh, Champaign, Urbana, mm-hmm. Western Illinois, so on and so forth. So the more that you can tie these things together and say, well, all right, what's the Im- what's the impact of having a, a, a budget impasse for over two years at yeah. the at the state house level? How is that trickling down to? You know the delivery of social service programs, the social safety net programs in the state. How's that impacting on higher education, where universities didn't really have a budget beyond their tuition income for over two years? Mm-hmm. All of these things, you know, if you can pull it together with a, a model like that, where folks are working together to give you uh, a context or a lens from which to to view the whole thing. Uh, I think that's very, very important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's the truth as as it as it were. I mean, and and uh, being able to synthesize it for individual locations and and markets, and it just boils down mm-hmm. into, you know, okay, here's a broad impact, here's a narrow impact, and mm-hmm. here is what you, you know, Joe Smith in this particular town be it big or small need to be able to digest and i think that goes back to your original point of like well, what was your job as a newsman and that mm-hmm. was to synthesize this this content into bites that people can digest and use it to better their their world around them day to day well one of the things i thought about and it may sound kind of corny or i don't know um maybe pollyannish or whatever but um i used to think you know when I'm going to the Capitol to uh, cover a, a complicated issue about what's going on there, how do I make sh- how do I do that in such a way or tell the story in such a way that anyone who's watching the program or listening to the program can understand it, no matter you know what their background is, mm-hmm. and um, that's always been one of the challenges. Uh, uh, for me personally is to, well, how can I explain this to my aunt, you know, or uh, someone in my family or a friend? Yeah. How do I boil that down to, to, make, to make sense of it? And um, over the years, um, that's been really one of the, for me, one of the most interesting things is to be there as these things are happening. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of it's relationships with the individual lawmakers, the governors over the years, mm-hmm. and the policymakers, uh, to try to, you know, to, to tease these things out, you know, from their various perspectives. Um, that's been one of the real challenges for me is to to, to try to boil all these things down. The um, so one one of the things that I'm interested in from a um, from a politics standpoint uh, is, you know, you're talking about having all these personal relationships and kind of where that would yield its value in reporting. You know, they, I'm, I'm sure plenty of people, you know, know the, the bigger names, the Barack Obamas and the Paul Simons mm-hmm. and whatnot, but is there anybody that stands out in your mind that was kind of a lower profile politician that you really just kind of clicked with and felt like you got a lot out of in your relationship over the years of reporting from the Capitol? That's a good question. Um, there are a lot of folks uh, who come to mind, but I I now remember the thread where I was going. <laughs> All right, yeah, play, play, follow through on that one. I know please. where I know where the thread I know where the thread is. Uh, the thing that was um, that became clear to me over the years was not so much our differences from 
let's say southern Illinois to Chicago to the Collar counties mm -hmm. or western Illinois or wherever, but was the uh, the commonality of the issues that faced everyday people in the state, and you know you you get a sense of where the political fault lines are, um, you know, how the city of Chicago might view a certain issue uh, with teachers unions for for one example to how you know southern and central Illinois feel about gun control uh, and how that w issue would be viewed in Chicago mm -hmm. um, yeah there are things like that where yes there are clear um, there are clear fault lines but when it comes to things like access to medical care mm -hmm. uh, access to uh, quality preschool education, uh, all of those things. Um, those issues don't really have a whole lot of geographical boundaries on them. Mm -hmm. um, you get to see how the whole thing functions as an entity, uh, and that's been one of the big revelations to me. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of, uh, we're in kind of a tribal mindset in some respects these days, and there's a lot of polarization, and we all know about that. But for the most part, when I'm at the Capitol, for example, a lot of these things, they're not Democrat or Republican issues. They're not, um, uh, they're, they're not things that are so based on a litmus test Mm -hmm. Ninety-five percent of it, you can work your way through it if there's a will to do it. And it's interesting when I do the shows up there. Um, a lot of times, if if, if we're in the uh, uh, we're pre-recording stuff, mm -hmm. uh, there's a sometimes a healthy time after the interview where Democrats and Republicans are having a private discussion about something as they're seat as they're sitting there. Uh, trying to find a way through to the middle mm -hmm. to fix something. And I, I really like to see that when I can. Most of the times they can on stuff. Um, but that is, um, that's one of the things to me that's, that's really kind of special about having kind of a, uh, an inside, insider's uh, opportunity to watch stuff. When you, when you talk to a lawmaker from Southern Illinois or suburban Chicago about an issue like um, the underfunding of the Department of Children and Family Services and how children are falling through the safety net and ending up in horrific situations, sometimes dying. They all care about it. Mm -hmm. They all care about it. Now, they may come to the table from different positions on how to solve the problem, but they do want to fix it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's, uh, I think that's one of the, the, the things I hold out hope for when I take part in these discussions is mm -hmm. to see how uh, both sides of the aisle uh, can and oftentimes do work together to fix things. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear how the uh, Republicans felt about the graduated income tax, mm -hmm. pretty clear how most Democrats felt about it. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of things they can work together on, and that's where I think the the true um, hope is for this whole situation. Well, that becomes its own interesting media sphere conversation because the the graduated income tax discussion, and ultimately media machines from both sides. I can't remember the name of the the billionaire gentleman that funded Ken Griffin. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to uh, J.B. Pritzker's mm -hmm. uh, funding on the one side, but but the the difference in infrastructure that each team was playing with, right? So I look at something like an Illinois policy or local government information services um, that that are really, you know, they, they purport to be news, but they are really more kind of propaganda outlets for their own particular side of the political spectrum. Um, versus versus you know true hard reporting, so like they're able to introduce things into the conversation into the media sphere that seem more credible than they may actually be. 
Well, you know, uh, it's not new, though. Yeah. Um, it, it, it feels new sometimes when, when you see groups get together from a particular point of view to make a case for or against, let's say, the graduated income tax or mm -hmm. um, public employee t pensions, things like that. Mm -hmm. But it, it's always been there. Uh, the, uh, the political viewpoints have been expressed by newspaper and other organizations since the 1800s in this country. So it's, it's not a new thing. Um, but as the number of media outlets declines to be on the ground at the Capitol, mm -hmm. I think that it's even more important for uh, folks to take a little deeper look, to try to dig a little deeper, uh, don't just have one thing you look at every day. Like I said a little earlier, I, I tried to read six or seven different news sources a day on what's mm -hmm. going on on Illinois politics. It's all the major newspapers, the big stations, and of course, uh, Rich Miller's Capital Facts, oh, yeah. uh, that um, <laughs> is a good source of information, uh, and of course, public media. So um, I still think there's responsibility on the part of the individual citizen mm -hmm. to do the most that they can to uh, get the information at the end of the day about how they make their decisions on things. And, you know, to do, you know, dig a little deeper when you see a spot that says one thing about one issue or another, go back, take a look, Google where the money's coming from, <laughs> you know, and, you know, take it, uh, take it into consideration at the end of the day. So, so let's talk a little about Rich Miller, because that's a fun one. I, I and so so I know so I know Devin. Now I'm gonna have to have Devin on the podcast. It's always oh, fun right. going okay. through these conversations. Like the the things just connect and build up and 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 out. So um, I just I because I worked at the Daily Egyptian for a semester uh, in college and in that time got to cross paths with him and have just stayed mm -hmm. w having a relationship with Devin, but didn't realize until later on Rich and Devin being brothers. I had gotten to see Rich speak to <laughs> a, um, a, a group of model Illinois government students. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, Rich, I do well enough. I'm sure just the, you know, being, being 20, 21 years old and, and seeing somebody get up and just be, uh, uh, the best way I can phrase it is as real as Rich was yeah. Yeah. about politics in Illinois um, and just cut straight to the chase on it. Looking out at a room of aspiring people that wanted to participate in politics at all different levels in mm -hmm. Illinois and saying, here's the real stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're talking about a thing called uh, capitalfacts.com. It's a, it's a kind of a daily hot sheet on what's going on in Illinois politics and it started out as literally a fax that would come out every morning and go to <laughs> when know. when okay so when did he start this when when did it first begin he faxing he started out? this in the early 90s he, okay. he 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 was started on the ground there in the early 90s and uh, it is one of the most credible sources of information uh, about what goes on at, or at the capitol mm -hmm. um, and in the political sphere in Illinois uh, that that you'll find. It's a subscription service, but he has a website, capitalfacts.com. Uh, the comments can, are golden. Right. Where you can, <laughs> the comments are uh, extremely interesting uh, every day. And there are some folks who have been, there are folks all over the state, right here in Southern Illinois, mm -hmm. all over the state, come from all kinds of backgrounds and levels of expertise and they weigh in on stuff. And you can learn so much in a day's time just by reading the comments on the darn things right. the, to get to give you a really good sense of um, the lay of the land. Um, but one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I could say about Rich is he's one of the hardest working people I've ever seen in any profession mm -hmm. um, when it comes to working his sources. His sources are impeccable yeah. uh, on both sides of the political aisle. And um, it, it's kind of the place to make your case one way or the other or, you know, have your say on stuff. Um, it's really 
Yeah, it's kind of a must-read thing when it comes to Illinois politics. Oh, absolutely. And the way that it's grown over the years with, uh, you know, live streaming and things like that, uh, it's really, it really uh, serves an important role. No, and I and I hope he's he's doing something to build it, to 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 live beyond himself, right? I, I know he's had some really quality people come through the doors over the years. The person that stands out to me because I had classes with him was a uh, Barton. I can't Barton remember. Lorimer. Mm-hmm. How do you pronounce his last name? I can't. Lorimer. Lorimer. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you. I almost I, I would have said Lorimer. So Lorimer's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I haven't talked to him in in years, but I know he spent time in in Springfield working for working for Rich mm-hmm. and has ascended in in his uh, uh, in his positions. Uh, mm-hmm. in in Illinois politics and it's like does does he have somebody or, or a group of people because I mean it, it would take five people to replace one rich Miller <laughs> well uh, you'd, you'd have to ask rich about that yeah. uh, uh, up close and personal but yeah. uh, you know he's had a number of folks over the years who have worked with him to um, you know to to get information to him one of the ones that uh, has done an especially good job has been uh, Hannah Meisel, who's now working for Illinois Public Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was with, uh, I believe that they called it the Daily Line, uh, but she's been up there a number of years now, and she's got a, a really good um, uh, foundation uh, for her reporting. Um, but yeah, the the Capital Facts thing is it, it's something uh, when you when you wake up in the morning, it's one of the things you go. Oh, <laughs> I did not know that. But, you know, when, when we talked earlier about relationships, Rich has developed those over the last 30 going on 40 years up yeah. there. And he's got a credibility and a certain gravitas. And um, if, you know, he plays it right down the middle when it comes to uh, how things are playing themselves out. Yeah. I, I wish I wish every state had a capital facts yeah. outlet. Yeah. I feel like the <laughs> the level of accountability in state government would be different if every state had one of them. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of it for the political junkies out there amongst us. It's 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 required it's required reading every day. And in the days of the 24-hour news cycle, it's extremely, you know, uh, valuable the way that, you know, he can plug things in mm-hmm. from you know different live sources like Blue Room Stream and things like that mm-hmm. that uh, you know take you up right to where the event's happening unfiltered. However, it plays out, it plays out that way, and you can see the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, and, that, and that's part of what has you know replaced kind of what we talked about in in the abundance of reporting. You know, people on the ground there where technology has. Mm-hmm you know, uh, kind of filled in the gap. And I, and I, and I, I will never argue that it is a, that it fully suffices for boots on the ground reporting. I mean, there's, there's just nothing to, to replace somebody being able to really dig in for you and carry you through the process because all too often, if, if it's just a media dump, right, if you've got to watch something firsthand and consume it in an hours long chunk, like somebody who may be reporting on it on hand is, you may not pull out the same context that you needed to because mm-hmm. it's difficult to keep track of that <laughs> that much media all at once. Yeah, and, and, and that's where uh, expertise like that's especially valuable because he's been watching the stuff on the ground for, you know, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of experiences um, that, that you need. You know, we were just uh, watching this week as we speak that uh, two of the longtime uh, reporters for the State Journal Register in Springfield have taken a buyout uh, mm-hmm. from their company to uh, uh, retire. Uh, Bernie Schoenberg and Doug Finke from mm-hmm. the SJR. Uh, if you look at their time on the ground at the Capitol, it's probably close to 100 years of experience. Gosh. I don't want to date them or uh, <laughs> give away ages or anything, but they've been there for so many years. Yeah. and you know, their viewpoint uh, or their perspective uh, and experience from having watched this for literally decades on the ground going back to, in this case, 
would have been the Thompson administration mm -hmm. uh, un until now, and the changes in legislative leadership and you know the back and forth in terms of the majorities and how the state um, uh, general assembly is made up. Uh, those kinds of perspectives are really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, don't disagree, and, I, and it's part of you know the, some of some of this discussion and, and and us having strong character in reporters like yourself in the Carbondale region. Like part of this project is documenting this to like know what true like earnest capable reporting is like people that that have that have sunk uh you know their their lives into this work <coughs> and really found out what the right formula is to produce a product on the other end mm -hmm. for people and and what type of positive influence that can have on communities throughout the state so i'm yeah i i just you know the more you talk about these folks that uh that are uh you know stepping stepping away from this activity it's like somebody's got to tell their story to inspire the next version of them mm -hmm. that comes along because we can't just let them go and not replace them at all right right and you know um i think they they you you can't replace them individually yeah. uh, because of their unique contributions and experiences but um you know i'm hopeful that you know their company uh fills the positions and gets people in their um Illinois is, you know, like the fifth largest economy in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, w when you look at Illinois, if it were uh, a, a nation state, it would be uh, at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it's that big of an economy. It's that big of an influence in world affairs. Mm -hmm. It needs to be covered. And, you know, we've got something like 12.8 a uh, million people in the state who are affected by the decisions that are made there at the Capitol. And you need that kind of uh, access and experience and um, viewpoint to, to, to cover this thing and to explain it uh, and interpret it um, on a daily basis. We're, we're the type of state that really does resemble all of america right yeah. Pe people you know people often you know put too much in a single bucket based on what state they're in but here you know we've we've got uh so much in the folks that live here that mm -hmm. represents so much else about the entire united states that like when <laughs> i remember around the around primary time when there was that chatter about oh does Iowa need to be the first in the nation Democratic caucus and whatever else. And J.B. Pritzker was like, hey, mm -hmm. we'll take these first in the nation uh, votes. And it's like that to me makes sense because it's like our the, the folks that find themselves on the right side of the political spectrum are a really good representation of the people on the right side of the political spectrum across the country. Same as with the folks that are on the left side of the political spectrum. Right. And everybody in between. I just I feel like something about Illinois is just so clearly representative of the greater America that we don't do enough of selling that up as as a state. And, and maybe we do. And I just don't take notice of it. But I don't know. Well, you know, it, it's an interesting place to cover because you have the urban issues of Chicago. Mm -hmm. You have the suburban issues of uh, suburban Cook County and the collar counties do you have uh i don't like to use the term downstate it's no. uh no. <laughs> it's something that you know was started years ago but uh when, when did you first start hearing the phrase downstate oh <laughs> uh 1980 81 okay and um, i got a kick out of how somebody once called rockford downstate and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> Last time I looked, it's north of Chicago, uh, pretty much almost in Wisconsin. Uh, but, you know, if, if you look at Chicago as being a center of global commerce and influence, banking, finances, Chicago Board of Trade, uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, all those things, and then you contrast that with uh, 
rural and urban poverty issues that we have. Uh, there's, or you're right, this is, uh, it's kind of the uh, American story, uh, uh, not in microcosm so much, but uh, it's pretty, uh, it, it's a good way of kind of looking at the rest of the United States from the Prairie State perspective, mm -hmm. uh, because we are all of that and more. Prairie State perspective, it's a good line. I really like that. It's spot on. The um, so did we did we at the very beginning did we ever actually talk about specifically how you how you got from Metropolis to Paducah <laughs> then to Carbondale? Um, we we should probably <laughs> okay, that's one sure. key component I like to get in the podcast. And we just we were talking about so much other good stuff. I hadn't I hadn't gotten on that. <laughs> um, I started out I, I started out as a as a disc jockey when I was fifteen. I think I actually started kind of walking into the station when I was fourteen. It was a a thousand watt daytimer in Metropolis uh, WMOK um, AM station. So uh, it would sign on at six o'clock and whatever. The local sunset time was you signed the thing off. Mm -hmm. It would be as early as 4:45 in winter time, and <laughs> I think as late as 8:15 in the summer uh -huh. uh, during daylight savings time. Um, but I went to work there as as a as a high school student, mm -hmm. and uh, my dad knew the morning uh, disc jockey there, and I had expressed an interest in radio at the time. I was listening an awful lot in 1969, 1970, mm -hmm. listening to a lot of rock and roll and stuff. And, uh, you know, I was listening to uh, the big rock station locally at that time was WDXR in Paducah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at nighttime when we would drive around when, you know, gas was 29 cents a gallon, <laughs> we would listen to WLS and, you know, all the famous rock jocks up there and I, I thought that was really interesting mm -hmm. and I just kind of half haphazardly mentioned it to my dad and next thing I know I'm out there on Saturday mornings learning how to run the board and <laughs> you know uh, shuffled uh, discs and cue up tapes and all that stuff and um, I was I, I was there uh, through high school mm -hmm. and it was a it was a great way to work your way through uh, High school and college uh, back in the day um, you know service stations used to have somebody come out and gas your car yeah uh, you know this was more fun than doing that uh, <laughs> lots that. more fun uh, I would take requests from my classmates before I would go out to the radio station and nice. I'd, I'd play them you know so so that so that took you did, did you go straight from Metropolis to Paducah or was Paducah part of your time while you were here in Carbondale? I, I oh, guess I, both I, I actually. It's a little bit of both. Uh, okay. What happened was, uh, in the fall of '73, I'd already graduated from high school, so I started going to Shawnee Community College mm -hmm. at Allen. And um, about that time, there was an opening at uh, uh, an AMF st AM FM station in Paducah, WPAD, and then later on the FM side, it was WDDJ, mm -hmm. and I started working there in the fall of 73 working my way through community college and uh, it was really interesting the uh, the contrast between the places because <laughs> the the first place uh, was kind of um, antiquated in terms of the equipment and everything mm -hmm. uh, and the station I went to in Paducah was uh, all modernized had the latest equipment and everything so it was really a great place to learn and I did everything from being a DJ uh, I would DJ on the country station from 6 to 11 then go over to the rock station and DJ from uh, midnight to 2 o'clock I'd uh -huh. go from Loretta Lynn and Conway Twitty to Blue Oyster Cult and it was uh, it was it was a, an, an interesting place um, we did a lot of stuff there. We did a lot of basketball and high school coverage, and you you learned a lot about different technologies there. And that's how I sort of migrated into the news side of things um, in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, I had had a course in news writing at SIU at the time. I was up here, started here in, as an undergraduate student, as a junior in 1976. And... Uh, um, 
wasn't originally interested in it, but since I had the news, the news writing course, uh, the news director quit right around Christmas of 78. Huh. And the gentleman who owned the radio station said, well, you've had some news writing. Uh, you want to try this? And I'm like, <laughs> sure, whatever. Uh-huh. And so I got into it, and um, my first day was um, I went to the mayor's news conference in Paducah, and I thought, well, I was going to come back with all this great tape I was going to edit and write all these stories. And I got back <laughs> to the station just in time to find out that uh, – a young woman, teenage girl, actually, had hijacked an Ozark Airlines DC-9 out of Louisville, Kentucky, I believe it was, and landed, forced the plane down at Marion, Illinois, to try to free uh, one of the inmates at the Marion Correctional Center, the Marion Federal Prison. Wow. And so I went from the mayor's news conference to covering something like breaking news, so I was calling all my friends back in Carbondale who worked at news stations mm-hmm. to string reports. And <laughs> it was um, a really interesting day. Fortunately, the whole thing worked out where no one got hurt. Uh, all the passengers got off the plane. The young person in question was safely um, um, disarmed uh-huh. uh, and everything went well. But I don't know that my life has ever slowed down since. Uh, it, in terms of covering breaking news, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, you go in in the morning to, uh, you know, there's a dozen things on your lead sheet that you're going to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the city council is going to work on this tonight. You know that this thing's up in the general assembly, and then police scanner goes off. There's a fire or somebody's robbed a bank mm-hmm. and or there's a tornado warning or, or something and you 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 do thrive on the uh, adrenaline yeah you do <laughs> been a long time still still kind of do yeah. I, I mean it I, I imagine that the it's kind of one of those things that once you get the taste of it it's kind of hard to live without it I imagine. Well, people are, I think by our nature, we want to hear stories. We want to tell stories. And uh, it's, it's part of, you know, part of being human uh, is to try to be there first with the news about whatever's going on in your community or your family or, or whatever. And um, I've, I've never lost an interest in it. And it's been really rewarding to work with young people over the years who uh, are curious about the business, curious about the ethics, curious about the whole thing. And the great thing about it is they're always asking you questions about why do you do what you do. Uh And so you never have the opportunity to take things for granted. You always have to ask yourself why you do what you do. And I think that's been really interesting over the years is uh, the opportunity to work with young people. And one of the th- things that's been really fun is as we do the Illinois Lawmakers Program at the Capitol, when we do the governor's budget message or the state of the state, mm-hmm. you know, we've got five or six SIU students there running cameras, they're running video switchers, they're running all that stuff for speech that's going to, you know, 10 public TV stations across the state live, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the public radio stations, you know, and those are college students doing something that, you know, I don't know any program that does anything quite like this. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just uh, an amazing thing to be in the middle of all that and watching these young people, you know, you know, getting their press passes from, you know, the House Speaker's office, you know, coming over, you know, getting uh, their press passes from the Secretary of State's office, all these things. Mm -hmm. And they're walking in, you know, in their suits and their best, you know, their best professional attire, you know, into this really uh, astonishing place, you know, with all the, you know, the dark oak and all that. And, you know, the 
uh, you know, the, uh, the huge monumental setting that is the Illinois House and the Illinois State House and everything. And they're doing such a great job and they're, they're so up after the thing that they can't believe what they've just done. And uh, that's just really cool. Do you have any old students that you live vicariously through because of an interesting position that they may hold somewhere? Hmm. Yeah, actually, there's a there's one that's really uh, uh, kind of cool. Eric Boyer, who lives on the island of St. Martin's, huh. um, travels all over the world uh, doing sports and special events for NBC. Mm-hmm. He was a student back here in the 19. 19- 80s, mid 1980s. Mm-hmm. The last time I saw him uh, was for the uh, coverage of the eclipse, mm-hmm. 2017, and uh, Eric's, you know, uh, stopped by after the event's over and everything. We're talking in the office, and he's got his iPad out and he's showing me how he's running two FM stations in St. Martin's uh, from his iPad. From his iPad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, it, it, it's it's really fun seeing stuff like that. There's, uh, you know, a, I've got probably several dozen of these I could go into, but uh, it's it's really fun seeing what they've done and how how they learned so much while they were here at SIU Carbondale and where they've gone since then uh, through their um, hard work, imagination, and uh, intelligence it's it's really it's really it's incredible to have been uh, able to share part of the experience with them and i will say jack that uh it's been a amazing experience getting to share this conversation with you um that has been episode 24 of the wtf carbondale podcast uh my guest jack titchener um with just so much wonderful knowledge and and stories uh, of you know what media has influenced statewide, but so much more importantly here in our little community uh, in Carbondale. Um, and you know if you've watched any of these podcasts so far, you know that my thing is media. Like I just I, it is it is what I I love and adore. And to get to hear uh, from somebody like Jack has just been an absolute honor. So uh, as I always say, have a good one, whatever that one may be. <laughs> <laughs>